welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast, the podcast where we talk about things in the scriptures that make them come to life for us and make them become real so we can draw more power from them and thus be edified together. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and today we're doing one of these uh, short casts that I'm uh, calling or making that up where it's just me. Uh, we wanted to give you a little bit of something to think about in terms of reading Moses chapter 7. And so this won't take uh, long, but I wanted to uh, get into this with you. I'm going to share my screen for um, those who uh, are are uh, watching this, uh, although there's really not much to see. I'm just going to highlight verses, so it's just fine to listen. So we're going to pick up where we left off last time. Last time we finished with, uh, at the end of Moses chapter 6, God had explained to Adam why he needed to be baptized and be born again and overcome death. I think that's really fascinating and beautiful stuff. Um, after that's explained to Enoch from that time forth, here we have in Moses chapter 7 verse 2, from that time forth, Enoch began to prophesy. And we get the story of his going to a place and they listen to him and some listen to him and some don't. And uh, he talks about the commandment to be baptized and, and repent lest they're not smitten and or lest they're smitten and uh, people start to recognize that he's a great seer and uh, so great is his faith that he leads the people of God uh, and we're in verse 13 and their enemies came to battle against them and he spake the word of the Lord and the earth trembled and the mountains fled even according to his command and the rivers and water were turned out of their course and the roar of the lions was heard out of the wilderness and all nations feared greatly. So powerful was the word of Enoch. And so great was the power of the language of God, which God had given him. Uh, we get interesting things about uh, giants and cities uh, coming up out of the depth of the sea and so on. Um, but what we want to focus on is the concept of Zion. So finally, you've got a large number of people that were already following God, and then Enoch converts more people. And so you've got this large group of people who are following Enoch as this great seer, and uh, the wicked are trying to attack them, but God protects them because of their faith and their righteousness, and especially the faith and righteousness of Enoch. And then we get um, this great couple of verses chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. And the Lord called his people Zion, because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. We'll come back to these ideas in a moment, but let's keep reading. And Enoch continued his preaching in righteousness unto the people of God. And it came to pass in his days that he built a city that was called the city of holiness, even Zion. And it came to pass that Enoch talked with the Lord, and he said unto the Lord, Surely Zion shall dwell in, dwell in safety forever. But the Lord said unto Enoch, Zion have I blessed, but the residue of the people have I cursed. And it came to pass that the Lord showed unto Enoch all the inhabitants of the earth, and he beheld, and lo, Zion in process of time was taken up into heaven. And the Lord said unto Enoch, Behold mine abode forever. But Enoch also beheld the residue of the people, which were the sons of Adam, and they were a mixture of all the seed of Adam, save it was the seed of Cain. Um, but verse 23, after that Zion was taken up into heaven, Enoch beheld, and lo, all the nations of the earth were before him. And there came generation upon generation, and Enoch was high and lifted up, even in the bosom of the Father and of the Son of Man. And behold, the power of Satan was upon all the face of the earth. And he saw angels descending out of heaven, and he heard a loud voice saying, Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth! 
And he beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. So now what we get is Enoch seeing a, a spectacular overarching vision of what happens after people have been taken up into heaven. And so we get an interesting situation that's set up, and this will be key for understanding um, next week when we get to Noah and everything that's happening with Noah. But we have this, what we could call the bifurcation, that's divided into two parts, the bifurcation of the world, where you have the righteous who are becoming more and more and more righteous, and the wicked are becoming more and more and more wicked. That should sound familiar to us. That's happening today. And the righteous eventually get so holy, and we'll look in a minute at how long it takes them, but they get so holy that they are taken up into heaven, and all that's left is the wicked. And, well, and we have the line through which Noah will come are intentionally left so that you can have Noah. But anyone else who becomes righteous is caught up to be with Zion. So all you ever have left on the earth are the wicked, right? So we're not at that stage yet. At some point, the righteous will be caught up to be with God, and the wicked will be left to be burned. But we're not at this point yet where there's such a separation, but we are in that separating phase where the righteous become more righteous and the wicked become more wicked. But this vision is shown to Enoch in an amazing and powerful way. And I can't take credit for having uh, noticed this myself. It's my good friend Terry Zink. Um, and I would recommend you find his article. Uh, it was in the uh, Journal of Book of Mormon and Other Restoration Scriptures, so you should be able to find it at the Maxwell Institute's website. I think that's mi.byu.edu, I think. Uh, you can double-check that. And search for the article by Terry um, Zink, S-Z-I-N-K. I will try and remember to put a link to it below, but I, I'm not very good at remembering to do that by the time we get it edited. So you can search for this article by Terry Zink, where he outlines an amazing pattern that we have in this vision, where he shows us that what happens, we, we get the same thing happening three times, that we get uh, in Noah's day, we have the, um, the righteous uh, and the wicked, and we have the righteous being caught up to be with God. So that's going to be the city of Zion. We have terrible cataclysmic activity that comes and the wicked are punished um, and, and so on. So you've got wickedness, you have God's vengeance coming upon them. The righteous are caught up and spared. And then the, the wicked suffer from this cataclysmic activity. And then he sees in vision that the same thing happens in the Savior's day. And then the same thing happens in the last days. So you've got a pattern that will happen in Noah's day, You'll, it will happen again in the meridian of time, and then it will happen in the end of time. And that's fantastic to understand that, because then we come to understand as we're studying the past, as we're studying history, if we study Noah's day or we study things of the Savior's day, we're studying future. We're studying our own day and what's going to happen in our day. There's some overarching themes in there. So, for example, um, Noah, or I mean, uh, God and Enoch both weep and the heavens weep. They keep weeping over this wickedness that keeps coming again and again and again, and they weep over it. And also the earth keeps begging, when can it rest? And, and the rest comes when finally in the second coming, when the righteous are caught up to meet Christ and Christ comes down to the earth. Uh, you have this interesting twist that it's Christ who is the first righteous that are raised up to be saved um, in um, the meridian of time, he's raised up on the cross, but that allows others to be raised up and the saints arise and appear to many and so on during the resurrection. Um, and it, it's very interesting in the last days, besides the cataclysmic activity that's the wickedness, you have a mirroring of the flood, 
But this time, instead of it being water coming from below and from above, you have truth coming from below and righteousness from above, and it will sweep the earth as with a flood. And President Benson likens that to the Book of Mormon. So it's some fascinating stuff, this large scope of the vision. But that's not going to be our focus here today. I'd, I'd love for you to look for that yourself and to read articles about it and so on. We're going to focus on Zion. So remember, Zion is caught up, and then Enoch sees this vision, uh, this sweeping vision. And then we get back to the idea of Zion again. Um, uh, where, and by the way, Zion figures in the vision as well, because the old Zion and the new Zion meet each other and it's wonderful. Um, and we get, um, down to, towards the end, uh, where we get, uh, verse 67 is the end of the vision. And the Lord showed Enoch all things of even unto the end of the world. And he saw the day of righteousness, the hour of their redemption and received a fullness of joy. So finally, the earth will rest, the righteous will be saved, and, and Enoch is happy about this and has joy. Then we go to the last two verses that just kind of sum up what happened in Enoch's day. This is all we learn about Enoch after this. And all the days of Zion and the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now think about that. That means that as after Enoch is able to establish Zion, it takes them 365 years before they're translated. We often think of this as kind of a quick process. It is not. It takes them 365 years of striving for righteousness to get to the point where they're translated. But after this 365 years, we get verse 69, and Enoch and all his people walked with God, and he dwelt in the midst of Zion, and it came to pass that Zion was not, for God received it up into his own bosom. And from thence went forth the saying, Zion is fled. That's beautiful stuff. And that's really our goal. We are all trying to work towards creating Zion. Joseph Smith was consciously trying to mirror Enoch and create Zion and bring about Zion. And he said that all the righteous throughout the history of the world should be striving for Zion. We're trying to be a Zion society uh, and have a Zion community. And I want a Zion household. Um, Zion is what we're reaching for, but if we're going to, to say that, let's see if we can understand what it means to have Zion. What, what does Zion mean? And there's more than one definition. We sometimes get confused and simplify because we try and think about uh, it always having the same definition, but it doesn't. It has more than one definition. So let's explore some of those definitions, all right? So one of the definitions is this city we just read about, Enoch City. It was called Zion. That's the first time we read about the word. And so uh, it's the city of Enoch. But most of the time in the Old Testament, it means Jerusalem. Zion is a hill next to the, the Temple Mount that gets incorporated into Jerusalem, especially in Hezekiah's day. And uh, then pretty soon it starts to be used as uh, it's it, when we use a part for the whole, right, this uh, poetic device. And so we get uh, them referring to Zion as Jerusalem in general. So because that's really starting to happen in Hezekiah's day, then uh, Isaiah will use this term a ton. And he is, if at least for his immediate audience, he is referring to Jerusalem. But he's often using Zion to stand for Jerusalem and Jerusalem to stand for all of Judah or sometimes all of Israel. And so even though he does mean that specific place, often it's used to mean not just that specific place, but also it's a stand-in for all of God's people especially when they're keeping their covenant. All right, now we get to this 
conditional. So those are, are kind of geographic definitions. We have a conditional definition. And that is that Zion are people who are of one heart and pure in heart. All right. So we, we get this um, from Moses chapter 7, verse 18 that we just read. And the Lord called his people Zion because they were of one heart and one mind and dwelt in righteousness and there is no poor among them. So it's that unity of heart and they take care of each other because they have so much unity. Uh, but we also get in section 97, so in Doctrine and Covenants, section 97, verse 21, therefore verily thus saith the Lord, let Zion rejoice, for this is Zion, the pure in heart. Therefore let Zion rejoice while all the wicked shall mourn. And you can see that these two things go together. When you are pure in heart, that if we're all pure in heart, then we will have one heart. That doesn't mean we won't be different personalities, but we'll have one heart. We'll be unified because we will be pure in heart. We'll be unified because we're wanting the same thing God wants. That's why Christ and the Father are one, because the Son only wants what the Father wants. So when we start to only want what the Father wants, which happens if we're going to tie into last week's podcast, because we're born again, because he changes our heart, he changes our natures to be like his. So then we all start to want the same thing. Doesn't mean we have the same personality. But in general, we're going, to, we're going to want the same thing. Then we're pure in heart. Then we're of one heart, and we take care of each other. Some people may be flamboyant as they do us. Some people will be quiet, all of these different things. But we want the same thing um, in purity, and we work towards it together. So that's a, a conditional definition of Zion. But it's not the only definition. We've got more than three. There is another definition, which is the New Jerusalem. And even that has more than one definition. So in some ways, we know that the New Jerusalem is in Jackson County, Missouri. Um, but we also have a number of times where Isaiah talks about Zion and the New Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 2. And uh, that can be taken in a couple of ways. In one of his contexts, so Isaiah intentionally prophesied in a way that it would apply to more than one time period. If we apply it to his time period, then he's, he's speaking of, Zion and the New Jerusalem is the same place, that Jerusalem itself is becoming renewed. But he also intends for this to be applied to latter days, where we have um, Zion and New Jerusalem, meaning things coming from the old world and things coming from the new world. And, it, and in that prophecy, he talks about a temple being built and all the world coming to that temple. And we have had prophet after prophet after prophet define that as the Salt Lake Temple as the, the, the new Jerusalem that people will come to and that the law will go forth from as the Salt Lake Temple. So it seems to me that we have prophetic interpretation that the new Jerusalem is at, at least the Salt Lake Temple in that area or the Wasatch Front, something along those lines, that area. That is certainly a prophetically defined definition of new Jerusalem. So just, just one definition of that. We also have Zion being used as a gathering place. Zion is where we gather. And this has a number of definitions. This can be, um, for example, it was Kirtland at one point. It was Missouri at one point. It was Nauvoo at one point. It was Salt Lake at one point. Uh, La Ye Hawaii was a place where uh, Polynesian saints were told to gather. There have been different places where we've been told to gather. And today, we gather in our wards and in our stakes. And that's where Zion is. The wards and stakes of Zion, if we're gathering there by being actively engaged in our ward and our stake and keeping our covenants with each other, then we're in the gathering place. All right. So eventually then Joseph Smith teaches us that all of North and South America is Zion. 
that must be because they're, this is where we all gather. They're, they're the promised land, right? So we have the old promised land, which would be Jerusalem and the surrounding region. We have the new promised land, which is all North and South America, and saints are gathering through the covenant there. And so that's an interesting definition. So let me just kind of highlight that. The city of Enoch is, is one definition. Jerusalem is another. This conditional definition that we're going to come back to and focus on is a third. New Jerusalem, with its several definitions, is a fourth. Any place we gather is a fifth, and all of North and South America are a sixth definition. But now we need to try and understand um, what is the process of building Zion, or how do we become these, these people that uh, the, the Savior is uh, talking about that are of pure of heart and, and one in uh, one heart. And of course, as I've already said, it has to come in some ways because we start to want the same thing God wants. And that's going to come because of our covenants. Remember, the two great commandments of the covenant are to love God. That's the most important thing. And when we love God so much, we'll start to want the same thing he wants. We'll also start to love his children. And that's the second great commandment. And that will bring that unity and that purity and that oneness. But all of this means we have to stop thinking of ourselves. This is one of the great difficulties of our day in such an individualistic, materialistic society we tend to think of ourselves. It's natural for natural fallen man anyway, uh, but it's even more so. I think today we have really an individualistic society that is self-centered. It is so hard to not be self-centered. It's so hard to be able to not just think of others, but try and think from their point of view and stop thinking of yourself. I don't know anyone who's perfect at that, but we have to stop thinking of ourselves, stop thinking about it being about us, start thinking of others, start thinking about how we can help others uh, and, and what they're going through more than thinking about ourselves. Now, I want to tell you a story of when this became really, really real to me. All right. And we're going to start out by reading the verse that became real. And this verse was in connection. I came to understand this verse in connection with um, uh, Enoch and Zion because it talks about Zion in these verses. So we're in section 78 now. And in section 78, we get in verse 3, where the Lord says, um, I have to move uh, my little power or my, my Zoom thing so I can read the scriptures here on my screen. For verily I say unto you, the time has come and is now at hand, and behold and lo, it must needs be that there be an organization of my people and regulating and establishing the affairs of the storehouses for the poor of my people, both in this place and in the land of Zion. And by that, he means Kirtland and Missouri, but it's this idea of being one with each other and there being no poor among you um, is a Zion idea, right? Now, he then talks about that it will be a permanent covenant uh, for the salvation of man, but we're going to go read verse five and six, which I think are really profound. Verse five, he says that you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also for the obtaining of heavenly things. For if ye are not equal in earthly things, ye cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. Now, I want you to stop and think about yourself and think what, when you think of yourself, how do you think of yourself? What are the key core identities that you think of yourself? Right, that uh, you're, you're loving, giving, happy, sad, I don't know, whatever the core identities are. Take a second to think about that. 
And then I think you'll realize if you think about it carefully that often we frame that in terms of how we are that in comparison to others. I'm a smart person in comparison to others, or I'm a fun person in comparison to others. I'm athletic or, or not athletic, or I'm good looking or uh, have a fun personality or whatever it is in comparison with others. So much of how we think about ourselves is how we are in comparison with others. And especially in a materialistic society, it spills into the kinds of things we're able to do that others can't do or know that others can't know or have or possess or own that others don't have possess or own or who has more than we do and so on. It, it all becomes a, a very much a comparison game because we're thinking of ourselves and we're only thinking of others and how they relate to ourselves, not thinking of them for their own selves. And God seems to be telling us in these verses that that won't work. And I want you to think about it. When we are exalted, how much of what the Father has will be ours? And the answer is, all that the Father has will be ours. All. I won't have more than you, and you won't have more than me. I won't be more than you, and you won't be more than me. We'll both be godlike. Now, again, I think probably with different personalities, but we will both be godlike. And I'm not sure we could take that right now. And I think that's why he says, if you're not equal in earthly things, you cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. If you can't take being equal here, how will you ever take the real equality that we receive in the hereafter? So I'll tell you this, the story of when this kind of really hit me hard. This is confessions of uh, a stupid person. So um, when I was a freshman at BYU, my roommates and I decided we would take a mission prep class. And uh, I, I don't know the exact story of what happened, but the person who was going to teach it couldn't teach it. And they got someone who didn't have much time, but he, he worked and I think he oversaw and organized a lot of things at the MTC. And they just started doing things in a new way at the MTC. And he'd been kind of the architect of that. So when he came to teach our class, he basically just taught us exactly what we would go through in the MTC. And we did that for a full semester. Um, and so we did uh, a, a, an hour a week, we did the MTC experience. Uh, going through the same things they would go through. And then I was called on a mission to Southern California. It was in the 80s, late 80s. So I learned to say dude right away. Uh, and uh, it's like, hey, dude. And, and I was good to go. I could speak the language. So I wasn't going to be in there very long, only three weeks. And, and uh, I was ready to, to roll there in the MTC. And uh, as we got in, I found, hey, everything we're doing, I've done it. I know this stuff. I can do this stuff. This is great. So I spent uh, most of my time helping other people. And I loved it. I was so happy helping other, all the people in my district, just helping them and helping them succeed. And it, I just was thrilled with it. And we went through everything we went through in that first semester or that, that semester at BYU. We, we did that in about two weeks at the MTC, right? Because we weren't spending just an hour a week. We were spending all day, every day. Uh, so in about two weeks, we finally got to new stuff, stuff I hadn't done. And I was still helping people in my MTC or in my district. I was still helping them. Um, but I found I wasn't enjoying it as much. And so one day I just stopped and took a good hard look at myself. And I asked myself, why am I not enjoying this as much? And I figured out, well, it's because it's not so clear that I'm doing better than them. I'm helping them, but we're on equal footing now. And I didn't enjoy it as much when we were on equal footing. I enjoyed it more when I felt like, I don't know if they thought I was, but when I felt like I was doing better. And when I didn't feel like I was doing better, I didn't enjoy it nearly as much. I was helping people and there was still some joy in that, but not as much. And that was shocking to me. 
And I started to think about what it really meant to be one in heart and to have no poor among us. And I think that means poor in all sorts of ways. And, and then I happened across this verse in Doctrine and Covenants that said, if you're not equal in earthly things, you cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. And I realized I would not be comfortable in the celestial kingdom because I was too busy comparing myself to others. And if we were all everything that God is and has and does, where would be my joy if my joy was coming from being something better than, than others? Um, and so I set about trying to stop thinking about myself. And that's easier said than done. And it's a long process. It's a lifelong process, but it's a much more fruitful process if we're consciously aware of it. If we are aware that we just need to forget about ourselves and love God and love others and see, try and see things from God's point of view and others' point of view and not worry about us and how it affects us. I'm not confessing that I'm very good at that. My family would tell you that I'm not. Um, I, I wonder why they're doing this because of the way it affects me. Don't they know that it's going to affect me this way? That's pretty self-centered. And so I'm still working on this and we all are, but we can work on it better when we realize what we need to change and do and become if we're going to be one of heart and pure in heart. And then we can get to the descriptions that God gives us at the end of section 78, um, where he says, um, in verse 18, and you cannot bear all things now, nevertheless, be of good cheer for I will lead you along, right? We can't bear everything that he's trying, wants us to become and is asking of us now, but he will lead us along until we can. Then look at the next part of this line. The kingdom is yours and the blessings thereof are yours and the riches of eternity are yours. And he who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious and the things of this earth shall be added unto him, even an hundredfold, yea, more. Wherefore, do the things which I have commanded you, saith your Redeemer, even the Son Amon, who prepareth all things before he taketh you. For ye are the church of the firstborn, and he will take you up in a cloud and appoint every man his portion. Sounds like the kind of stuff Enoch saw in his vision. Um, there was another part that I wanted to see. Uh, um, Uh, he talks about you may come uh, under the crown that's prepared for you and be made rulers over ki many kingdoms. Um, there was another part where I thought he said that we couldn't even understand everything that he had in store for us. Um, anyway, the, the, the chapter ends, the section ends with this. And he that is faithful and a wise steward shall inherit all things. Amen. Again, that's in stark contrast, verse 22, with verse 6, where he says, if you're not equal in earthly things, you cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. We want to be equal in obtaining heavenly things because that's the only way to have all things. Uh, and that's what we want. And I hope, um, I hope that we can work towards that by forgetting about ourselves and not comparing ourselves with everyone else, but instead love God and love each other and try and see things from God's point of view and from other people's point of view and want what God wants. And if we all want what God wants, then we will truly become Zion. And of course, we can't do any of that on our own. We, we have to do what we can, but we also have to plead and beg and pray to be born again, as we talked about for last week, 
to have our natures changed and to be born again. And then we can become a Zion community and a Zion family and a Zion person. And for that, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.